your FID rate is just this numeric identifier, right? It's just kind of this anchor point so that everyone, everyone on Farcaster has this ID number. But that's not really useful for communicating with people, right? <clears throat> if I want to send a message on, on Twitter, I'm going to use somebody's name, right? I'm going to message you know, at, at Chase on Twitter rather than look up your numeric identifier in the ID registry contract and figure out how to, how to send a message to you, right? Uh, so these FIDs are really useful at the, at the protocol level when you're constructing a message. Uh, they let us define the interactions in the protocol in terms of this, this numeric ID, which is more useful for kind of machines to read than human names, right? But your name on the Farcaster protocol is, is actually an ENS name. So you can bring your own ENS name, you can register that and associate that to your FID, which can be used on the protocol as your, your name. So if I'm referring to someone, I can refer to you by, by ENS name, or you can use a Farcaster provided identity. So it'll be like chase.fcast.id. And we're working on making those fully compliant ENS names as well. On this episode, we spoke with Horsefax, who has built a ton in the space. He's working on Farcaster right now, talked about their idea of like sufficient decentralization and how they think through like what to put on chain, what to put off chain. What did you pick up from this episode, Chase? Yeah, I think another really interesting piece here was just when to abide by standards and when to build your own sort of implementation. So we talked about Farcaster's identity system, um, along with some of the the on-chain and off-chain stuff. So this is just an episode full of really, really interesting and great little golden nuggets. So hopefully you enjoy it as much as we did. We are here with Horsefax, who is an independent Solidity engineer and general EVM enthusiast. Horsefax, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, you've had some legends on this podcast so far, so I'm really, really honored to be here. Another legend on this episode as well. Very excited to dive into all of the work that you've done across the space. You've you've had your hands on a lot of different projects, so can't wait to dive into that. But before we do that, maybe you can give a little bit of background on how the hell you got into crypto and what brought you to where you are now. Sure, yeah, that's always an interesting story. Uh, I think... I'm technically class of 2017, I guess, but I feel like I kind of wandered slowly backwards into the Ethereum ecosystem over a few years. But yeah, the, the story is that the first project I worked on was an EVM indexer, a project called Vulcanize DB, starting in like late 20, 2017, I guess tail end of like the ICO boom and kind of the, the run up there in 2017. Yeah, at the time I was working for a consultancy building software products and met Rick Dudley, who was the sort of inventor of Vulcanize DB, kind of mad genius figure, in my opinion, around the, the Ethereum community. But yeah, he came to us with this idea for building a, an Ethereum indexer, uh, which became this project called Vulcanize. Uh, so yeah, back at the time, you could think like this was kind of when the graph started to evolve and people started to build on top of the graph. There were kind of a few competing competing indexer products at the time. I think you know everyone in the space has built, <laughs> built an indexer, it seems, whether it's for their own custom application or kind of trying to take their own swing at this, like, let's build the one indexer to, to end them all generic indexing type product. But Vulcanize was a really, really cool product uh, in part because uh, it was trying to do a few things that other index indexers didn't do, including indexing all Ethereum data. So we would we would take in you know every block, uh, all the events in that block. We forked Geth and added some modifications there to get access to storage key changes and storage value changes. So we could track storage changes from block to block. Uh, you could watch contracts and sort of decode contracts and events. And the the idea there was to build an indexer that could be open source, could be run by run by anyone, would sort of store kind of full take Ethereum data you could get back in a reliable, provable way, data about about the contracts and, and events and information that you're interested in. And this was in a time before we had like great APIs for a lot of this. You know, guest tracing really has evolved and parity tracing and uh, some of that tooling has gotten way, way, way better over the last several years. But at the time we had to do kind of a lot of low level stuff in order to, to get access to that data. 
anyways, yeah, worked on this project for a few years, kind of solving solving a lot of problems. I think many people in the space have, have solved event decoding and indexing and all of that. I guess the, the claim to fame for Vulcanize was that the maker team used it as their internal indexer for MCD. So when they were building MCD, a lot of kind of internal tools at, at Maker relied on the system and uh, used that for like liquidation dashboards and internal alerting and, and things like that. There were a few different, you know, different indexers within within Maker at the time, as there are and probably probably any DAO, right? There are a few different solutions to every problem, but uh, but we were one of them. And so we're involved through that, basically through the launch of MCD. And kind of woke up after a couple years of working on this project and realized I had lived this great sort of full stack experience of the, the whole UVM, right? Like we were we were running an archive node in order to to run the infrastructure for the system. We had maintained this fork of Geth and learned a lot about internals there. Uh, I was spending a lot of time like reading the MCD contracts in order to decode the events that are in those maker contracts and learned a lot about Solidity through that. And so, you know, I'd been in an Ethereum sort of hobbyist, you know, in 2017 and prior to working on this project. And for a couple of years, you know, I wasn't wasn't maybe totally convinced, you know, Ethereum is going to stick around. This project it was just an interesting technical project, right? But I kind of woke up after after a few years and realized that I've, uh, I've learned a lot about this ecosystem, became really, really interesting, increasingly interesting after working on that for a while and uh, got slowly pulled deeper and deeper. So it was really interesting in that I kind of was like off in a corner working on this project of my own for a little bit and maybe like not super focused on the whole ecosystem, but kind of kind of woke up after a point and realized, wow, like, I've learned a lot about the space and and the things people are building out there is, are really cool. That's always kind of a magical moment where you're like, whoa, I actually know way more about this space than <laughs> I imagined. And now it's applicable to a bunch of other things, which it seems like from there, you moved into a lot more consumer type of applications. Yeah, you know, it took me a long time to start writing smart contracts and writing Solidity. And I attribute that to having worked with with the team at Maker who like have this incredibly high engineering standard reading those contracts. I consider, you know, that original Maker team and the folks there superheroes in, in the space. And, you know, they have such a high bar for testing and verification. The DeFi ecosystem can be, you know, so adversarial, so high stakes that it can be really scary to write contracts. And so uh, I felt for a long time, like there's a very high bar to clear that right in order to write reliable, reliable solidity and had to kind of, kind of walk that path and learn that, uh, learn my, that myself to get into that. I would attribute like kind of the NFT boom and on-chain art and some of that was really, really great for me as a developer because I gave myself permission to kind of you know experiment, right? And suddenly there were these things you could do on-chain, right, that were not like, you know, a DeFi protocol that is, you know, that is handling tokens or, or money or so so high stakes that you have to have to think really carefully about that. So that was a good place. And I built all these projects, right, prior to that, smart contract projects that kind of, you know, were on testnet or, or never got deployed or, or whatever, so kind of cautiously wandered my way into working on smart contracts and, and more, more consumer-facing stuff. But but yeah, since then, I've worked a little bit more on some user and consumer-facing stuff. So Seaport, a little bit of support for Party DAO, and I've been working on Farcaster most recently. Yeah, so it sounds like you kind of used some of the more consumer-facing, maybe we'll say less high-risk types of domains in crypto to start exploring what it looks like to write Solidity and actually develop smart contracts. Yeah. I don't know if anything is less high risk. <laughs> it's the most adversarial, <laughs> uh, most intense, most kind of perfectionist programming environment I've ever worked in. It's something that's really exciting about it. I think for a certain type of person, that's that's really fun and exciting. For a certain type of person, that's like <laughs> terrifying and you turn around and run away for, for good reason. But, but yes, yeah, uh, something like that for sure. Coming from the Web2 world of like, if you make a mistake, it, it'll cost the company money, but... There is not literal money like on the lines of code that you're writing in the same way that there is that literal correlation now. Like even at Seaport, it might not be a single contract that is like a 
an Ave with like a ton of TVL, but the code that you're writing matters a lot to the people that are they're using it. So it's it's high stakes. I'm curious in the context of moving from Vulcanized DB towards more of these consumer facing applications, what are the different paradigms in terms of just thinking about consumer versus and even even being more involved in the maker ecosystem? Like I'm curious if there are different paradigms or approaches to smart contract design in the sort of DeFi world versus the more consumer facing crypto application world. I think a very interesting thing about the kind of solidity in smart contract space is it's it's young enough that a lot of the patterns that we have and practices that we have in solidity developments are still kind of folklore, right? Like there's not a patterns book, right? That you can go grab and read on kind of patterns for, for solidity development. We're getting there, I think, right? Like we have open source examples of past protocols and, and code and, and things we can go look at to establish some of those. And like, we, you know, we have names names for patterns in the ecosystem now, you know, proxy patterns and and vaults and, and we have standards like tokens, right? But in some degree, the like the ecosystem is still young enough that we haven't given names to all these uh, all these components of these things that we have in the ecosystem yet. And, and to the question of I guess yeah differences in consumer facing versus like DeFi facing. Yeah, I guess I think of Maker right. The ecosystem is old enough now, right, that we have had kind of several waves of developers and several waves of kind of designs and, and patterns for some of these contracts, right? And so yeah, you know, I think about Maker and like the thing I love about those contracts is kind of the old school. I think of those as old school and their kind of old school simplicity and, and immutability of those contracts, uh, kind of removing as much as you can from the design of that system or that interface. I don't know, I guess Maker is kind of, you know, notoriously known as a system that has <laughs> lots of moving parts and, and interactions, right? But I think the developers of that system did do a good job of kind of removing everything they could to make make that as simple as, simple as possible, even if there are many components that need to interact. Since then, yeah, we've gone through maybe some successive waves of, of design of contracts, right? We have you know, upgradable contracts and that whole wave of, of design and, and patterns there in terms of, of designing those protocols. Something I've been thinking about more recently as well is like, as I was sort of reflecting on this recently, working on the Farcaster contracts is kind of the influence that even front-end tools can have on the design of your of your contracts under the hood, right? Like I sort of had the old habit of, you know, let's write a function with, you know, multiple primitive parameters, right? You know, an integer, uh, an address, something something like that, right? Because it used to be really painful, right, to work with structs and solidity. On the, on the solidity side, when you're developing in solidity, it can be kind of painful to construct structs or things that have nested arrays and, and things like that. But actually, we have these tools now on, on the front end, right? VM was the example here where it's actually really nice to work with structs, right? And so you can have this sort of influence and this interplay between the way that your, your front end interacts with the contracts on the back end and this kind of design of the front end and, and your contracts. I don't know. I think it really depends on the scale of your system. The answer in, <laughs> in everything, solidity and, and software is almost always it depends, right? It kind of depends on the scale of your system and, and what you're integrating with, right? For like a simple single contract application, maybe it makes more, more sense to kind of design for the integration with your front end. For a larger system with more components and more things interacting, maybe you should think more carefully about kind of the core design of your, your protocol and those contracts. So, yes, yeah, so what I'm hearing is like at a high level within this new paradigm, simple is better. But as we have built more out and as our tooling has improved, we've been able to allow for more complexity, whether it's complexity in the communication between the smart contracts in the front end or just like complexity in the, the protocols themselves. And I think Farcaster in particular is, is a cool area of not only do we get to do neat new interactions that don't exist in like DeFi and just like regular NFT ecosystems, we can start to use this as a platform that we're communicating through and that we're just like using to socialize. I think Farcaster has a design mantra of like sufficient decentralization where like you only put on chain what needs to be on chain and then you 
you take off chain what you don't want to have uh, on chain. Can you talk a little bit about that? And actually, maybe even before we dive into that, can you give just a high level about what Farcaster is uh, in case any of our listeners haven't played around with it yet? Yeah, sure. So Farcaster is a protocol for building social networks. It's a decentralized protocol, consists both of an off-chain protocol for storing messages and what are called called hubs. This is an off-chain peer-to-peer network repository that gossips messages between hubs and stores message data for, for the network. And yet an on-chain component, which is mostly used for identity. Uh, so yeah, there's a distinction between Farcaster, the, the protocol, right? and then clients of that protocol. So you might have seen Warpcast, which is kind of the major Farcaster client right now, which is building a it's sort of a Twitter-like social, social network interface. Got it. And can you, for listeners that might be more aware of like other sort of distributed social network platforms, how would Farcaster hubs compare to Mastodon, uh, what do they call it? Federate, the Federation Federated Spaces? Yeah. How, how would those compare? Yeah, so the big distinction is that on Mastodon or a Federated site, sort of each Mastodon server is storing its own copy of certain messages and then they're Federated, right? So if you need to get a message from some other server, you can go reach out to somebody else's server to get that data. In a Farcaster hub, every hub stores all the messages on the network. So it's not a blockchain, but it does use sort of cryptographic signatures over the messages and Merkleized CRDT format where each hub stores all the messages and you can verify. If you're running a hub, you have all the data at any particular point in time. So you touched on some of the architecture pieces. I think it would be interesting to get a little bit deeper into what that looks like. So it sounds like identity is sort of the piece that lives on chain and then some of the, the other pieces around messaging are what lives off chain. Maybe we can start with identity living on chain and then go into some of the messaging pieces off chain. Sure. So we mentioned this mantra of sort of sufficient decentralization. One thing I like about the design of Farcaster is that I think they've been very pragmatic in designing, choosing what to put on chain and, and what to keep off chain, right? So uh, basically all the messaging data, all the kind of high frequency data that's generated by users on the network, that all lives off-chain in the hubs. We can talk about that in a sec. And sort of the minimal necessary state is what what lives on-chain. So we have, I think, yeah, four or five contracts that are on-chain. Those are on Optimism mainnet now. So we just just migrated up from a testnet that was on Gourley to to Optimism mainnet. So we have an ID registry. So this is basically your, your Farcaster ID or FID. So that associates an Ethereum address, your EC, DSA, key pair, Ethereum address with a, just a numeric identifier. So you can almost think of that as like uh, an NFT minus minus, right? Like it's uh, it's just kind of a, a numeric index in this, uh, in this ID registry, which your Ethereum address points to this identifier. Those are transferable, sort of have limited transferability. So you can transfer those to to other addresses. Contracts can own FIDs as well. Uh, the big thing there is that the receiver of an FID has to accept that transfer, so you have to sign for it. But if you're a contract that supports 1271 signatures, or you can, can sign messages, you're able to, uh, to receive and own and register FIDs on chain on Optimism. So just a quick follow-up question. So this is not using like a 721 or 1155 standard, right? Like this is Farcaster's own sort of implementation of, to your point, like NFT minus minus? Yeah, it's it's even simpler right now. And the previous design, uh, they actually were 721s, and we thought about that that design as well. But yeah, we want to keep the Farcaster ID registry basically as, as simple as possible. So uh, it's in- intentionally not a 721 for some reasons there. Interesting. I mean, just as like a side note, and then we can get back into the on-chain and off-chain elements. In my mind, I'm thinking also about friend tech, which in a similar way is not actually abiding by 
standards. They're just sort of building the minimum viable version of what they need in terms of the contracts and what's on chain in order to like have users have an experience that makes sense. And so in my head, I'm kind of like, "Mm, interesting observation that some of the more, I don't want to say evolved, it's not necessarily the right way to think about it, but after a few iterations of these social applications, it seems like abiding by standards might be overrated. I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong take. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that. I think there are places where standards are are really important. And actually, this is a good segue. Maybe we can talk about another one. So your FID rate is just this numeric identifier, right? It's just kind of this anchor point so that everyone, everyone on Farcaster has this ID number. But that's not really useful for communicating with people, right? <clears throat> If I want to send a message on, on Twitter, I'm going to use somebody's name, right? I'm going to message you know, at, at Chase on Twitter rather than look up your numeric identifier in the ID registry contract and figure out how to, how to send a message to you, right? Uh, so these FIDs are really useful at the, at the protocol level when you're constructing a message. Uh, they let us define the interactions in the protocol in terms of this, this numeric ID, which is more useful for kind of machines to read than human names, right? But your name on the Farcaster protocol is, is actually an ENS name. So you can bring your own ENS name, you can register that and associate that to your FID, which can be used on the protocol as your your name. So if I'm referring to someone, I can refer to you by by ENS name, or you can use the Farcaster provided identity. So it'll be like chase.fcast.id. And we're working on making those fully compliant ENS names as well. So we're going to use an off-chain resolver where we can issue you, if, if you want to bring your own super decentralized name, you can use your, use your ENS name, associate that to your Farcaster ID. If you want to use the slightly less decentralized uh, Farcaster provided off-chain resolver, you can, can register that and you'll get one of those by default. This was actually an example of a case where we weren't using a standard for that earlier iteration of the contracts. Uh, we had our own kind of name registry, ENS-inspired kind of thing. But over time, we realized, yeah, the ENS standard is, is really useful for this. We have a perfectly perfectly great name system that we can use, and let's just, just adopt ENS as, as the standard. And so we were able to migrate from that kind of custom hand-rolled name system over to, over to ENS. So yeah, I think it's a matter of kind of choosing where and when you want all the capabilities provided by a standard. And like, yeah, in the case of Farcaster FIDs, we decided... At least right now, we don't necessarily want everything everything that comes in that bundle of adopting the standard, right? Like transferability from person to person, you know, listing those uh, in the open on, on marketplaces and, and, and things like that. Like all, all those things that are built on top of making that an ERC-721. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like I'm trying to think about the generalizable rule of thumb there. And I, I think y- you're right in the sense that I don't actually know that there is a generalizable rule of thumb so much as it is like, for any given moment where you can decide to abide by a standard or build your own, you basically need to do a cost-benefit analysis. And it's kind of interesting because to some degree what you're doing is like deciding whether or not you want to adopt sort of like the physics of an existing thing versus build your own. And, you know, of course, the physics, quote-unquote, around composability and all of that comes with a whole slew of other weird things around like, okay, well, now people can trade this and and now it's compatible with all these maybe, you know, AMMs or whatever it might be. So yeah, I, I guess I'm curious, like, it sounds like maybe there is not a single rule of thumb for whether or not you want to be adopting existing standards, but I'm curious if that feels like it resonates with you or if you do think there are a few things where, where there are very clear, you know, sort of ways to assess whether or not you want to adopt a given standard or create your own. There's all there's always a trade-off there. Yeah, I guess we're just going to come back to it. It depends again, right? But like, there's always this question, right, of are you going to be the first person to trailblaze a new, a new standard as well, right? Or do you want to want to adopt something that's been used and, and adopted by, by the community already? So into that ID then, I'm starting to see where it is needed as sort of the glue. You want something that is disconnected from an individual 
address so that it can be transferable if you change your Ethereum address. But you also need it to be able to like be the glue to a human readable ID, whether that's the Farcaster generated one or an ENS. So you need it to be able to like move and attach to these different things. And probably it needs to be flexible enough that in the future you can maybe attach more things to it or just like change the shape of it to be whatever it is that you need. Does that seem accurate? Yeah, yeah, that seems, seems right. So there's a key registry contract. This is where you so you have your FID, you have your name, right? That's an ENS name. So a key registry associates public keys to an FID. So you can basically add and revoke keys on chain. Really simple registry, just kind of a mapping of which FIDs are associated to to which which public keys, and kind of a generic schema in there for adding potentially different types of, of public keys and different types of kind of metadata that's associated with those those public keys. And this was another place where we looked at some standards and drew inspiration from some there. There are standards out there for you know other kind of on on chain PKI registries, and we looked at the design of the stealth address registry, right, which is an interesting, interesting IP out there as well for a kind of PKI infrastructure. But yeah, ultimately, this key registry is, is quite simple. It's just an on-chain registry which associates what's called a, a signer to your FID. And this is maybe the bridge between some of the on-chain components and some of the off-chain components. So within Farcaster, right, your FID is owned by your, your Ethereum address, your ECDSA key. Signers, which are what the, the keys that are authorized to produce messages on behalf of your, your identity on, on the protocol, uh, are EDDSA keys, which live live off-chain. So if I sign up with a client like Warpcast, for example, they'll generate an EDDSA key pair for me, register the public key of that key pair with the key registry, and now that key, which which the client has has created and is, is holding onto on my behalf, is authorized to post messages on, on my behalf on the network. So you delegate authority to, to a client app in order to post messages on your behalf, and that uses EDDSA for some, some technical reasons. The off-chain protocol is all built around EDDSA keys. Uh, so through the key registry, you can can register those keys, basically adding and removing applications which are authorized to essentially post to Farcaster or produce messages on your behalf. And the key registry is the link there where storing those public keys on chain, uh, hubs can read read that key registry, the off chain components read that key registry, and know which keys are authorized for which users at, at which time. And that helped to solve some synchronization problems that was actually stored stored off chain before you'd sign sign a message off chain in order to authorize or revoke signers. Uh, but actually putting that on chain turned out to be a place where Using a blockchain for that for that state and using using a network that we know is kind of globally synchronized helped us solve some problems in kind of the, the key adding and revoking infrastructure option in the hubs. That's a really interesting aspect here. Is that is is that type of delegation for a client to be able to post basically on behalf of you? Is that common? Do you know among other like does Lens, for example, do something like that, or is that sort of unique to Farcaster? So certainly, yeah, the use of EDDSA and off-chain signers, I think, is is somewhat unique to Farcaster. I actually don't know that much in detail about how Lens does does delegation. I know Lens does a lot with meta transactions, right, where you can authorize or delegate certain addresses to, to post on your behalf. In general, though, Lens is like much more on-chain, I think, than Farcaster. Farcaster is right. The design of Lens is is much more kind of everything goes on-chain. Design of Farcaster is more let's store everything everything off-chain. I'm I'm a Web three social maxi. Like I'm I'm on Lens. I'm on Farcaster. I'm on Blue Sky. I think these are all. These are all cool. These are all really interesting, uh, interesting different points in this design space. Like I, I like them all. I hope they all hope they all succeed. But yeah, they're they're all sort of at different points in terms of the design space and, and the trade offs. And there's some cool stuff I think you can do on Lens in terms of like that on chainness of of the protocol as well. I'm kind of glad that like we're seeing 
all of the different options play out because I think that's kind of what we need in order to be able to see what works and what doesn't. While you were talking, I was looking at the difference between ECDSA and EDDSA. It sounds like so EC meaning elliptic curve, ED meaning Edwards curve. And there's like a trade-off in, it seems like, performance and like implementation. Is this like too in the weeds or can you speak a little bit about like why choosing EDDSA for this component? Yeah, I think the short answer is like, yeah, EDDSA is is faster for some reasons to graph. I'm not an EDDSA <laughs> cryptography expert, but uh, but yeah, the idea is basically just it was a better choice for these off these off chain components that didn't need to interact directly with Ethereum. And now Ethereum is like you know is built pretty deeply around ECDSA, right? And so anything that kind of need, where you need to do a signature on chain with with Ethereum or you're interacting with an Ethereum address or account, that kind of by necessity needs to be uh, needs to be ECDSA. Although there are lots of interesting like proposals out there, right, for new new precompiles and new, especially with account abstraction and stuff coming out there, that that might be changing for Ethereum. But you know, at least for now, Ethereum is still pretty pretty tightly coupled, I think, to ECDSA implementation. It sounds like it's like a further example of like doing the thing that makes the most sense for the context that it's in. And like just because Ethereum uses ECDSA everywhere doesn't mean that like our off-chain thing necessarily has to do that. Let's use something else that if it fits better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious. So it sounded like there was recently a migration with the deployment of the V3 contracts and that you had to migrate data from the existing contracts to the new ones. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this was really interesting for me. And this was actually the first like you know major system that I've designed that would be L2 native. So we migrated the V2 contracts from Gorley, uh, right? We had a running network, right? People were, were using Farcaster. Uh, maybe not everyone <laughs> knew that it was it was based on Gorley, right? But all the all the Ethereum contracts were all the the you know blockchain anchored Ethereum anchored stuff was uh, was deployed to to Gorley for V2. We gave a revision to those contracts for V3, introduced kind of the new design we've been, been talking about here with those few contracts, and migrated every everything to to Optimism. Yeah, and there were a few few interesting things there. Like first of all, the fact that it, it was possible to migrate in the first place, right? Like I think L2s have opened this new design space that's very interesting where where trade-offs, right, that simply weren't possible on L1 are, are possible now, right? So we had 20,000 users. We migrated the data from, from the Gorley contract to, to Optimism, right? We just sent 20,000 transactions to, to register everyone, you know, read the data out of the old, old contracts and write it. Like, yeah, I haven't done the math on like what that would have cost on, on L1, but uh, would have would have been, you know, prohibitively expensive. I think we spent one and a half ETH or something like that to, like, to, to migrate everybody up to Optimism. Did that process in itself come with like its own weird edge cases and like problems? I think when you think about sending like two or three transactions over between networks, it's like one set of constraints. But when you're talking about twenty thousand, I imagine that like gets complicated, right? It was it was pretty smooth, I have to say. I mean, part of that was because we designed right, we designed that migration system in, into the contracts, right? So we had we had batch methods, right, where you could could specify in multiple users at a time, and you know, of course, like we tested the script and the, the system pretty pretty heavily to ensure ensure it all checked out. But yeah, I think like adjusting to life on LTS has been has been interesting, right? There are things there are on the developer side, you have intuitions that are sort of hard won from working on L1 for a long time around what to optimize and how to write your code that are like sort of totally out the window when you're working for L1, right? Suddenly L2 gas is is a rounding error, right? And the only thing that matters is the cost of 
of your L1 call data. And we're not necessarily not in the, all in the habit, right? As developers of optimizing, optimizing for call data, right? We have optimized for gas for, for so long. Like those are really, really hard one and, and kind of deeply ingrained patterns, I think. But yeah, as well as, you know, tools, tools that sometimes interact with, with L2s, you know, you have to figure out how to estimate gas and figure out how to do these calculations of, you know, L2 gas versus L1 call data costs and, and some of those things where, you know, working on that frontier, those tools are maybe not quite as developed as using using some of the tools that are native to native to L1. So, yeah, there can be some challenges there. So you kind of spoke to some of the challenges. And then I'm curious on the on the flip side of that, like, are there certain design decisions that you feel like are unlocked from an L2 perspective? I mean, certainly the ability to migrate 20,000 transactions is one. But in terms of other sort of paradigm shifts, I'm curious if, if there are certain things where you were like, holy shit, this is actually possible to do on an L2 and we could have never done this on, on L1. Yeah, I mean, certain like certain cost decisions, you're you're able to make a trade-off in terms of the value of, say, you know, your your time versus the effort in you know in continued optimization or adding additional features, something like that, right? Since it's simply not an option on, on L1, right? The the decision is is always to optimize, right? It's 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 always figure out how we can make this more gas efficient. Always figure out how we can can reduce the cost. There are conversations maybe when you're working on L2 that are like. You know, if we save 20 cents calling this function, is that worth investing, you know, this amount of, of time and, and effort and money in, in that optimization? And that's much more like, I guess, you know, questions in kind of conventional software development. But those are conversations that just simply aren't even possible on, on L1. I don't know. I don't know that I have the answer to that, right? And like, it's an, even L2s are this interesting ecosystem, right? Where those long-term costs are subject to lots of different variables that are that are in flux, right? What is the cost of L1 call data going to continue to be what is the cost of L1 gas going to continue to be? What happens when L2 block space suddenly is is in higher demand than, than L1 block space? You know, there's a lot of a lot of uncertainty to, to design around there, I think. You've written quite a bit on testing. And I'm curious if any of the approach to how you you think about testing shifts from an L2 or, or when you when you're on an L2 versus an L1. Yeah, that's an interesting question. We have this amazing blessing of EVM compatibility and EVM equivalence between between many L1s. And fortunately, that means that in terms of testing what you're building at the, the EVM, like the bytecode level, we have, I think, pretty good... Those tools carry over, right? And so maybe those, those tools and techniques carry over. When we're thinking about testing for, like, you know, gas profiling definitely is kind of a dark art and, and a challenge, right? That changes a lot. Maybe that's a form of testing, right? But that's not so much the sort of testing that's about like, you know, correctness of your, your code or design of your system as much, even though that stuff is, is really important. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, we, we are starting to see in some places these divergences, right? Big shout out to Matt Solomon's EVM diff tool, which is like a great place to go go explore and, you know, seeing these things where, you know, some LTs don't support push zero yet. And, um, you know, but main, main Ethereum does or certain certain sort of drifts in some of these, these features and, and configurations across EVMs. I think... Testing will be important in those cases, right? Where it's not necessarily guaranteed that you can take some contract that's deployed on on what network and go go deploy it on another. Yeah, I mean, even I'd imagine like <laughs> the testing for the the batch transactions of moving towards an L one, I'd imagine was quite robust. Though I don't know, maybe maybe there's a, a world in which it was not effective and you waste one and a half ETH and it's like whatever, you have as many shots at it as you need. But yeah, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, so like a thing that's like still continues to amaze me and be really, really cool and exciting about working in Solidity and working in the EVM is like just the determinism and the ability to simulate transactions on the EVM. Like, I think this is one of the things that I found most like continues to kind of continuously blow my mind as, you know, a former like web do developer who has come 
come into the space, right? Like thinking about what it would be like to do that in, I don't know, some you know, payment system I was building in in a web app, right? Like, okay, let's like fork the state of the world and like we're gonna fork the state of everybody's credit card balance and like, you know, make this request to the Stripe API and see exactly what would happen if I'd done this. Like so much of the time that you invest in these systems that you build in the web, right, is around accurately simulating, right, or mocking and stubbing these these dependencies that you have and trying to create this system that is this this model, right? This model that you're testing that is like analogous enough to the real world that you can feel confident in it. And you have this capability in the EVM and in these deterministic systems to say, just fork it, just see what what would happen. And that's that's really cool. And so many intuitions that I had like coming into the Solidity space have changed like because of working with that with that that property of uh, of the EVM, right? Like probably many Solidity developers have gone through this, right? Like you start like writing mocks and stubs and things that are these kind of carryover patterns from testing in the old world. And then you realize you can actually rely in a much more production-like, meaningful way on your real dependencies or and simulate those real dependencies uh, in, in a useful way to you as a developer. Yeah. Consensus on on the state of of things and determinism as a as a combo is, is pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to the point of like, you know, the migration, right? Like we were able to able to see exactly what would happen before we ran those transactions, you know, run checking out, did we migrate everyone exactly as we expected? Uh, run an off-chain Hub, for instance, make sure this picked up all, all the events exactly you know, exactly as we expected, and the state of the data was was exactly what we expected afterwards. Um, yeah, that's a pretty cool property to be able to have in your in your system end to end. Yeah, I want to linger a little bit more on testing, but like zoom back to some of the work that you'd done previously. I know at Seaport you worked on a fuzz testing library. I know you've written a lot about invariant testing. How do you think about and prioritize these different approaches to testing? And is there like, I've seen the like, the web two testing pyramid of like unit testing on the bottom and like integration testing at the top. Do you have like a similar way that you think about and prioritize which type of testing you would do first and then what you do as you like have additional time and flexibility? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I think the like I think the conventional testing pyramid is probably still a good guide to to how to prioritize. I you know, my answer in general is like you should do it all. <laughs> Obviously that's not like a <laughs> that's not necessarily uh let's say like a resource uh, informed answer, right? Where we all have to make trade-offs between where we're going to invest our, our time and energy. And yeah, I don't know if that determinism of the EVM necessarily changes the way you would, would structure that that testing pyramid. For me, yeah, I do more fork testing and simulation testing in in the EVM because I think I, I think I can than I would would in other types of, of development, right? Like this notion maybe of like an integration test is kind of less clear in, in solidity what what that is and where where that lives. But yeah, in general, I'm a big fan of unit testing for design, right? As a mechanism that gives you continuous feedback on the design of your system as as you're building and in like the most Extreme case of that, that is like TDD, right? Really, really rigorous TDD where people are writing their, writing their tests before they write their code, that kind of thing. I think the correctness benefits of that maybe are less clear in solidity, right? Like it's probably not the best mechanism to ensure correctness. You should be relying on fuzzing and formal verification and, and writing a good spec and, and higher level tools for like that correctness. But I do think it has implications for like getting fast feedback on the code that you're writing and the design of your system. I think that's especially important in smart contracts where you have like a lot fewer opportunities to get that right, right? So that kind of write a test, write some code, see how it works, kind of like red, green, refactor, conventional cycle of, of TDD 
can be really useful to give you more iterations on on the design while you're building building a system. So I think you need to do both like top down and bottom up, right? Really good systems start with high level thinking about the spec and the invariance and the design of the system from kind of top down. Unlike the way maybe people in web do like like to do it, right? Saying, okay, we'll just build it bottom up, like go purely totally agile because we can deploy a hundred times a day and fix any mistakes that we make in the system. We can't do that with smart contracts, right? You have to have that top-down thinking about like, what is the spec? What are the invariants of the system? But as you're building that from the bottom up and thinking about like iterative design, I, I find that very useful, right? And like, yeah, I do believe in this, like this sort of adage that things that are difficult to test, right, are probably poorly designed, right? Where you feel where you feel pain in your tests, you need to think about the, the design of your, your production code and, and your system. And so... Uh, kind of getting that continuous feedback is, is very, very useful, I think, as you build. So always start with unit tests, right, for me. I think one thing I think is extremely cool about tools like Foundry that, that have become really popular and like testing in Solidity is the ability to kind of upgrade your tests as you go as well, right? So you can start with writing unit tests for some specific conditions and you can kind of upgrade those into a fuzz test, right? Parameterize those, define properties about the unit tests that you've written as you're kind of exploring the design space and build those up. In some cases, even turn those into like a symbolic symbolic test or plug those into uh, a tool that does, you know, more spec-based kind of formal formal verification. That workflow, I think, is very powerful to say. Kind of start start simple with these, thinking about these individual cases and then kind of boost and, and upgrade the power of your, your tests as you go. It's one thing I thought was really cool about Daptools. We don't quite have the like symbolic execution integration for Foundry just yet, but Daptools used to have this right where you could change a, a test from, you know, test underscore to check underscore I would run that test as a, as a symbolic test. Um, we have some pretty good, pretty good and increasingly good tooling for that, though, that like plugs plugs into Foundry. There's uh, some stuff from the runtime verification guys. There's there's Helmos and some tools that kind of pick up on your your Foundry tests and we'll 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 inject that. And I hope soon we can have have that kind of same workflow though of like upgrade upgrade your tests as you go. Yeah, I I like those few rules of them also, which seems to be like always be testing. If you are finding it really difficult to write tests, then you should probably take a look in the mirror and escalation basically of, of your tests is, is sort of the way to go. And hopefully tools just get better over time for that. Yeah. Maybe another interesting thing here is that there are forms of testing in the EVM ecosystem that like I rarely used as a Web2 developer, right? Like I didn't do a lot of formal verification of my, my web applications. But systems, I think, in smart contracts, right, are, are small enough and simple enough that in many cases, you can apply those tools. Uh, you can write a spec that describes all, all your invariants. You can keep your, your system small and simple enough that, that you can actually use these forms of testing that are much more, much more difficult to do uh, in other ecosystems. And yeah, I think we should be embracing those and using those as, as much as we can as well. What does using formal verification look like for writing your Solidity test? Are there tools or is this more of a thought process? What does that actually translate to? Yeah, I think it's both. And I am still learning, you know, learning these tools myself. I'm not a formal verification expert, but I do like to use the tools as a practitioner, right? To the degree that I can. It starts with thinking about invariance, right? You'll see this term come up in, in lots of testing, right? Invariant testing, symbolic execution testing, formal verification, right? It's about what, what are these, these properties that should, should hold true about your system at any given time. And then thinking through, yeah, how can, you know, state transitions within that system affect those properties? What should always be true no matter what within some bounded context, right? Maybe it's the whole system and the interactions between those contracts. Maybe it's a single contract and its state at a, at a particular point in time and sitting down and thinking through those. And once you have those specified, right, you can define those as kind of like logical mathematical properties, which you can then, can then verify. 
using a tool like a bunch of different formal verification tools using like you know the Satora prover where maybe you write those you write those tools out in a, a specification language or Helmos right where you're doing symbolic execution and and sort of defining the properties about your system in a more kind of unit unit testy style syntax cool all right that's super helpful this was like a lot that I I'm going to revisit this portion of the episode and just like mine it for testing knowledge this was really great <laughs> As we wrap up, I'm I'm very curious. So one of the, the questions that we've been asking people is basically like, what tools are you bullish on or have found most helpful? It could be libraries, could be tools, could be whatever. Yeah, what are you most excited about? What do you think people listening can and should explore? Yeah, I mean, maybe this is just salient because we were just discussing it, but I think the symbolic execution and formal verification tools have come a, a long way in terms of their ability to be used by sort of individual practitioners, right? So... I've been experimenting with the Sertora Prover recently. That's a really cool tool. Uh, with Helmos as well, it was just a symbolic execution engine that plugs into Foundry tests. And these are becoming much more usable, I guess, by everyday folks in terms of writing writing specs and kind of building these into your, your day-to-day development workflow. Yeah, of course, Foundry and like the, you know, the fuzzing and testing and variant testing capabilities that that has built in, that entire suite of tools has, has transformed the way that I, you know, I, I test and build applications. I think, you know, folks who aren't using that yet should, should absolutely check that out. Maybe all the way back to the indexing conversation. I'm really excited about kind of the emerging Rust ecosystem of, of tools and products. Like I went to the, the Rust Day demos recently and like there's just been so much growth in, in that. Think, thinking back to right, what we were doing with Falcon Eyes and what the information we were trying to extract out of Geth and the hacks that we had to, to put in place to kind of get access to the, to the data that we want. We have this emerging ecosystem where some of the components of the stack have been abstracted in ways that are, are really useful and you can kind of build it at different layers in order to extract data that you're interested in and do both real-time, you know, pull real-time data and kind of historical analytical data. And uh, yeah, I think that sort of abstraction of modular abstraction of different components of the uh, the Rust DPM stack is, is really exciting because there's some things we can, can build on top of that too. Yeah, I got to meet you at the Rust Ethereum event. And I have to say it did Rust pill me more <laughs> than I had been. Uh, I mean, I've always been like, oh, cool, this is super fast and neat. Uh, but just seeing how much the Ethereum Rust ecosystem has emerged was was pretty promising. Bullish. <laughs> Bullish Rust. Bullish. And also abstraction because over abstraction is the name of the pod. Well, Horace Fox, it was so wonderful to have you on. Where can people learn more about you and all of the wonderful work that you're doing in the space? Sure. So I'm uh, horsefacts.eth on Farcaster. Let's do that one first. <laughs> and actually, I'm spending a lot more time there. There's a great conversation around folks who are building on, on the EVM on, on Farcaster. I'm also eth underscore call on Twitter if you want to find me there. Still spend spend time there. And yeah, you can check out kind of my professional backgrounds and projects and things at terminally.online, which is my website. Which yeah, is a great plus, website. Yeah, it's a great name. Thanks. Plus one, the, the, the Farcaster signal to noise ratio is great right now it's like there is ethereum people there and like that's that's what it's for and that's what it's about i mean i'm over time i imagine that's the idea is to evolve that but compared to my twitter feed my twitter feed is like a a wasteland at this point it's very sad yeah elon has done a real number on twitter but um (laughs) it was so fun to have you on horse facts thank you so much for coming on the pod we'll we'll also link some of the testing uh, tools that you mentioned in in the show notes because i'd imagine people are going to want to dive into that so thank you so much for all of the the wonderful conversation yeah thank you both 